Welcome to Insight into Teaching Intro Psychology, a McGraw-Hill informative audio series. These podcasts feature subject matter experts, instructors, and authors discussing psychology-related topics in higher education. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another installment of the Insight into Teaching Introductory Psychology podcast. My name is A.J. LaFerrera. I'm on the marketing team at McGraw-Hill. And today we are going to be tackling the replication crisis in psychology. And we are joined by four great instructors. So why don't we go ahead and get started with some introductions. Scott, do you want to kick us off? Uh, sure. So my name is Scott Bates. I'm a, a faculty member at Utah State University. I've been here for maybe 15, 16 years now. Um, I, I've taught intro psych to probably 10,000 students. I've taught uh, the research methods course. I've taught the intro to the major course grad social, I'm, I'm a, an experienced teacher, um, which gives me some hesitation broadly as to being on such a, a great distinguished panel. I'm also a co-author uh, with Chris Cosby on the, the uh, research methods text called Methods and Behavior Research. And finally, I've got, uh, I've got an administrative position these days, which I think factors in here. I, I'm a, I've got a really long title that comes with very little power. It's, uh, I'm an associate vice president and associate dean in the Office of Research and Grad Studies. And so I run undergraduate research across this campus, and um, these kinds of issues, this sort of broad science stuff has come up quite a bit in, in that with that hat, too. So I'm really happy to be on the panel. Hi, I'm Kimberly Duff. I'm a faculty member at Cerritos Community College in Southern California. I've been there for about 20 years, and I regularly teach introductory psychology, large sections of about 60 students, and additionally online sections. And I also teach social psychology and research methods, so especially in social psych and research methods, the replication crisis comes up a lot in the classroom, so I'm excited to be talking about that today. Also. One of my roles, I'm the vice president in the Western region for the National Honor Society of Psi Beta. And one of our goals is to actually facilitate the ability for students to be able to conduct research as undergraduates. So this is an important topic. I'm Laura King. I'm at the University of Missouri, Columbia. I am a personality and social psychologist. And I teach um, introductory psychology in a small uh, honors course and in a much larger uh, lecture class with about 500 students in it. I am, uh, have also served as a journal editor in personality and social psychology, and so the issues of the replication crisis have uh, knocked on my door many times. My name is John Gray. I'm a professor at Pacific Lutheran University. I teach uh, social psychology and research methods and statistics and intro and capstone. Uh, all of those courses cover this topic uh, at some point or another. Uh, I'm also the past president of PsychI, where we work to engage in a number of research transparency initiatives. I'm the managing executive editor of the Journal of Social Psychology. We are the third journal to adopt open science badges, which is one of the responses to the replication crisis. And I'm currently the chair of the Open Science Badge Committee. Uh, which is trying to increase uh, transparency in science by getting people to be more transparent when they publish research. Great. Well, thank you guys all for joining us. So why don't we go ahead and get started. And John, I know you had um, written down a couple of things that you wanted to kind of kick us off with. Do you want to? Yeah. So the, when, I, when we talk about the replication crisis, uh, I always pause a little bit because the issues about replication have been discussed for, for decades. 
Uh, we are talking about it today, I think, because of what I refer to as the year year in crisis. There were, in social psychology, three major events that all happened in 2011 that got us all talking. One of those events was that a fellow named Dietrich Stoppel falsified data and dozens of manuscripts and uh, just made it up, and nobody caught it. Very high-tiered high publications. The second event was a fellow by the name of Daryl Bem published a paper in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology demonstrating evidence of precognition. Uh, for, our, for our intro students out there, it means paranormal psychic activity. Uh, I often find people don't still use the term ESP in class. Because JPSP was, is a top journal in social personality, it set off a larger discussion about uh, the issues of probability hacking, p-hacking, which I'm sure we'll talk about in more detail later. But he found statistically significant findings, but it probably shouldn't have. The third was a big social media discussion about failures to replicate social priming research of unconscious thoughts. And uh, it was primarily occurring in social media, and eventually Daniel Kahneman, who's a Nobel laureate, wrote an open letter calling for better methods in social priming research because he, he saw a train, train wreck looming. So these three events all happened in very close time, and we responded. So the field started responding, and that's what we call a replication crisis. I prefer to talk about Scientific Revolution 2.2, uh, but the term replication crisis is what we all talk about. So that's my, my brief note of where it came from. It's interesting, John, that I had a colleague in, in psychology who, when I shared that JPSP paper about ESP, and he's, you know, he comes from a behavior analytic background. He, he just said, well, that's the end of your discipline. And uh, I, I think the, the reputational aspect of all this is, is an, also an important thing to kind of to kind of think about. The, the number of, of articles that came out that were sent to me by colleagues and that were sent to me by family members was really interesting. Slate magazine and uh, in Chronicle of Higher Education, it was sort of everywhere all of a sudden. New York Times. Well, and I think it's important, too, to point out, you know, so people don't panic. And I know I have students panic a lot, especially if they're in my methods class and we bring up the replication crisis, that this is not just specific to psychology, and this affects other fields as well. And I think I see it as, as kind of a positive outcome because it really kind of shines the light on, on the importance of doing replications of studies. But it also shines the light on making the the science and the data specifically public. Um, you know, one of the things that I've always talked about with my students that didn't collapse the medical field was the study in the 1990s, the single study Dr. Andrew Wakefield published um, that was only done on 12 children. And from that study, even today, people erroneously make the link between getting a vaccination and autism. And so that didn't collapse the medical field, but it's still important to talk about that. So I think in psychology, it doesn't necessarily collapse the field. It doesn't collapse social psychology, but it definitely redirects our attention of things that we need to think about more critically in our own discipline. Yeah, I think that I think that's really, really true. And and in and in fact, you know, there's a lot of, of federal funding agencies these days that are really pushing hard on on accessibility of data and having data management plans. And the you know, the NSF really has been leading the way, but NIH and other agencies too are are coming up with sort of requirements for people if you've got federal funding, 
which is not as common in psychology as in other disciplines. But if you've got federal funding, you know, that data is, is publicly owned, and so it needs to be accessible. And, and what does that look like? And there's been a lot of conversations nationally about how do you store a data set permanently, and how do you make it, you know, something useful for somebody, on, uh, you know, in the future. I just wanted to say I think that issues of transparency, and, of, and I think, you know, most sensible people are coming to, around to realizing how important transparency is, open science and open data and all of these initiatives, I think, have a really strong foothold uh, in young investigators and perhaps in funding agencies as well. But the idea of uh, what Stoppel did, for example, fake, literally faking, making up fake data from whole cloth is really different than someone perhaps running a study that is just underpowered and then taking advantage of type 1 error and feeling like they've just discovered the wheel. Like, wow, look at this incredibly counterintuitive finding. And I think one of the problems there, especially for funding agencies, is that even as they might be pushing for transparency, they're also still, and journals still do this, they're still focused on what's hot. What will change? What is something that will be transformational? That's the word, right? We still right. want to highlight transformational science. Well, transformational science, I believe the science that knocks your socks off, that's truly transformational, might not be, it might not be the science that you're like, wow, how can that possibly be true? And so I think that there's still this issue of, there's a reason why Stoppel's work was so exciting to people, because it was exciting. It was counterintuitive. It was sexy. It's harder, much harder to sell science that is maybe super sound and rigorous and very replicable, but maybe not as sexy. And, and that highlights a couple points. One is that replication is not equal across all manuscripts. The replication project in psychology that Center for Open Science supported demonstrated that some fields within psychology were more replicable than others, and manuscripts that had better probability values to start with were more replicable than others. So it's, it's not that the problem is ubiquitous, and as an editor myself, I certainly think that the faking data is a rarity rather than a common one. What I like is that we've started talking about these issues that are referred to as research, researcher degrees of freedom and trying to reduce questionable research practices. So any decisions that we make in the research process is, is a decision, a, a degree of freedom that I have. So how many subjects am I going to collect? What am I going to stop collecting data? Uh, how, how many conditions? All the covariates. Yuri Simonson has done a lot of work demonstrating how these Decisions about these factors can change the statistical significance of outcomes. My favorite example is the, in, his, in the 2011 paper where they showed people that listened to the song When I'm 64 were older than people that listened to a children's song. And of course, it's just not physically possible, but they, they demonstrate how improper reporting can lead to that. So the replication crisis itself has led to all of these conversations about how to avoid ma making those decisions, some of which I was trained to do as, an under as a graduate student. I was trained to do what we call p-hacking or probability hacking, 
uh, following the, the best guidance of the time. So we're retraining ourselves to be better scientists. It's interesting, though. I think I think that the the science has has responded. I mean, I think this was sort of a not exactly a virus, but if you think of science as having an immune system, it certainly was under attack. On the other hand, some of the key things that may have led to this, I think, are still sort of hanging out there. So you know that the two the twenty twelve open science collaboration piece is is a great starting point for anybody who's interested in, in this broadly. And, you know, in there they talk about the fact that there's the, the incentives that scientists have uh, and the sort of the contingencies of reinforcement <laughs> um, that are present for, for young and, and not young scientists these days are, are really sort of troubling. So if, you know, at, at research institutions, if tenure and promotion is dependent on, on, on big splashy data and, and as a consequence impact factors and H indices and total citations um, and, and not sort of uh, contingent on doing good science, I, I, think, um, I, I think that we're, we're not rearranging the deck chairs. I think the work that's been done has been really good in bolstering the immune system, but but I wonder if there's a I wonder if there's a broader conversation to be had about you know what do we reward scientists for and what do we what do we see as the as doing good science? Uh, nobody becomes nobody is probably going to become well known for conducting replications and and so uh, it, you know it's an interesting sort of notion to think about what maybe we need to redefine what we mean by a good scientist or or somebody who's doing who's doing really important and good work. Well, I think that's where the teaching component is important, right? Because I think a lot of people, myself included, because I teach research methods every semester, and in 2011 and 2012, I was panicking every time I saw something on the New York Times right. you know, that was outside of APA or APS because then I knew my students could potentially see it and they would ask about it. But I think that's where it is important to have the conversation with students, one, to talk about ethics. You know, in my course, we don't just talk about the replication crisis. And the consequences, we also talk about plagiarizing. And there have been faculty that have been removed from their R1 positions because they have plagiarized other people's papers. And we talk about what the consequences are for science, but also what the consequences are for individuals. And I think that's important, too, because even with Staple, right, he people, colleagues of his and students of his suspected that the data was fabricated. So there was kind of a checks and balances system there. It, it took a while, right? I think it took a couple years before before it actually came public. And later he did actually admit that he falsified the data. But there were people checking the work, right, doing the peer review. So eventually these things will come to light. But I do agree, Scott, and I'm not sure what the solution is. The problem is, is that if you have an R1 faculty position, there's so much pressure on publisher parish that I think for a lot of people, they're not going to do these replication attempts, right? They want to come out with something, like Laura said, that is sexy, you know, mm -hmm. that they can do a TED Talk on and that will, will revolutionize psychology. You, um, if you want to, I mean, I hate to say this, I write two things, two little uh, warning signs. If you want to be concerned about a paper not being replicable is if it is published in, if it's a social psychology study published in science, and if, it, if the person is giving a TED Talk, which is <laughs> never good. And I want to say, too, I think it's important because students get enthusiastic as an instructor. I love it. If my students say, oh, after lecture today, I went and listened to this TED Talk on that topic, 
And I love it that they're excited and engaged, but at the same time, I, and this is something I would love to hear from all of you about how you handle or balance. We want students to understand, like, you know, how scientists, what the empirical method is, right? How we uh, understand what makes knowledge. And when I'm talking to them about the empirical method, and, you know, sometimes you're going to read a study, and it challenges what you think is true. And I want them to see that sometimes their own biases are leading them to expect certain outcomes. But that getting them to be skeptical of their own beliefs and to really take science as a way to understand the world is kind of challenged when then they hear about, but you just said counterintuitive findings are probably not replicable, right? So I wonder how you all balance your desire to have students understand the value of empirical research while at the same time presenting them, right, with the reality of this replication crisis and what the implications are for what we know? That's a great question. I, I mean, I think it, there's, well, I mean, my, my strategy in that particular thing is really to think about all of this, all of the replication crisis or World War or whatever, is to think about it like as an opportunity to really have conversations that are, can be bigger and deeper that somehow 10 years ago were kind of lost for me as a teacher. They were lost in the details of teaching methods and intro psych. But now I think I see this as a conversation where you can say, you know what, all data are flawed. And so skepticism is a good thing and consistent skepticism is a good thing. And you can reduce skepticism by, you know, looking at replications. And, and so I, I had the same reaction, <laughs> which was, oh boy, here we go, you know, here's, a, here's another case where I'm going to have to stand in front of a bunch of students and, and sort of defend science. But eventually I said, well, I, 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 this is science, you know, a, a way for science to self-correct. And that's, the, so to me, the broader conversation became one of, hey, we're skeptical. Science is skeptical. We don't believe anything. And so as a consequence, we, we test and retest. And, and so that, that's been my approach. And it's, it's pretty, it's, it's fairly successful here and there. But it, it does sort of, I, the thing I worry about is students throwing up their hands and saying, none of this is true. Like, this is not a good path to, to knowing things. And that right, exactly. uh, there's risk. So when I, when I talk to students, and, and frankly, colleagues as well, I think we sometimes forget that science is the pursuit of truth and not a statement of truth, that scientists are supposed to believe that everything we know is wrong and that it's only the best answer we have at the moment. So to the degree to which the replication crisis allows me to say to students, yeah, remember, we're scientists, which means that we are on an ever-changing journey of what is truth. In methods, I'm excited that I don't have to teach double standards anymore. You know, it used to be that I'd say, this is how we do empirical research, and then I'd say, and if you want to get it published, this is what you need to do. And, <laughs> right. and that was a very frustrating time for me. I, at one point in 08, I thought about leaving academia altogether. It just didn't make any sense. And so now I have tools to say to students, this is how we do science. And then publication bias is a problem, and these are issues that you face. These are issues that are faced, and here's how to do good science. And I, I think there's a difference for R1 faculty and researchers, or research intensive, I should say, and the rest of the field. I don't need to do brand new novel science. I'm measured by 
how good a science I do or how well I do science. And so I'd like to see the field look at the type of research we do and where we are and not necessarily that we're all trying to do the same kind. I get excited about these large meta science projects where we get to ask big questions. Well, and I, I will say, as someone who is at a research-intensive university, I think that it is, what I would like to say is that people who are doing things right are given a benefit of the doubt, but I don't think that that's actually true. I, I, I'm not, in my un, not at my university, but in the publication world. I think in academic publishing, people are still dinged for in presenting imperfect research transparently, right? You get a, a, a pat on the head for being honest, but the paper's not going to get published in an outstanding journal. So I think that the, there's still this disconnect between people's ideals about good science and then what, will, what the field is actually ready to publish and say, yes, this is a, an excellent attempt at knowledge. And so I would say, like, in that sense, I'm not sure things have, have changed so much. But in another, I think, you know, the truth is the definition of, of a strong study always involved excellent, you know, large sample sizes. There, there's never been a time in the history of science when using random assignment with 30 people to create two equal groups was ever a good idea. Those tiny little sample sizes had, were never good. I don't know why they passed muster. Uh, as a personality psychologist, I remember thinking to myself, well, I don't understand how you can say these groups are equal. If you take individual differences seriously, you definitely need to have more than 10 or 15 people per cell to make generalizations. So, I mean, many of the principles that people are talking about now have always been the, good, the principles of good science. And so, you know, sort of re recognizing that yet again and recommitting ourselves and rededicating ourselves to what was always true, I think is, is a healthy thing for all researchers all over the place to be doing. And I think it's, as a teacher, I feel like the goal then is to have students prepared for understanding what solid science looks like. So they'll know if they see something that sounds really interesting and they dig deeper and then find out that it's based on tiny, a tiny sample or that the, you know, the manipulation, the operationalization of the independent variables maybe isn't quite as uh, ecologically valid as they had originally thought, right? That the headline isn't exactly what the study did or showed, I think then I'll feel like I did my job. There, there's a wonderful piece by John Oliver on his This Week Last Night or whatever that show's called, where he talks about science in popular media and I think it's a great video to have students watch. It's not exactly science, or it's not exactly psychology, but it does really highlight the problems of publication not matching science, as Laura was just pointing out. Yeah, and I, I, in some ways, I think social media sort of it's just exaggerating that that issue. So. And the, our Twitter feed is, is uh, participates in that. Like, oh, here's something that is interesting. And uh, we, we're trying to say this is interesting to discuss in class, but there are plenty of sort of outlets for, hey, look at this amazing science and, and, or look at this amazing result. And, and I think psychology or behavioral sciences broadly are really sort of vulnerable to the, hey, wow, look at this kind of thing. And it, it drives a lot of page views and it drives a lot of clicks and it drives a lot of Facebook use. And, 
And I think, um, you know, that, that's sort of the other end of that, that problem, I think, is that we, you know, our, our discipline is inherently interesting and compelling. And so pushing it out there, I, I think, the, you know, the stuff that um, maybe 15 years ago, non-replication wouldn't have been the thing because replication would have happened over time and it would have, you know, the, the, the really solid results um, would be replicated and would be expanded and extended, not just with exact replications, but with conceptual replications where you're, you know, trying it out in new populations or with additional variables or additional measures and, and that sort of thing. And now I think the, the Twitterverse and the, and the Instagramverse are, are so uh, hungry and, and so satisfying that it's, uh, it, it, you know, it sets us up, I think, for, our, for the kind of trouble that we're, we're seeing now. Well, and that's a double-edged sword, right, Scott, because it's, students get excited sometimes to take, right. you know, like social psychology students are excited about. A lot of topics and research methods and stats, they're not excited. So if a student comes into the classroom and says, wow, I just heard on my Instagram and my Snapchat about this fabulous new study that changed the whole world of psychology, you want to sustain that excitement and you want to be able to talk about the study but at the same time, I think as instructors, if we then dismantle that entire study and say this is a great opportunity to critically evaluate the flaws in the method, then the students leave the classroom thinking now everything that I hear in psychology is true. It is a soft science. None of these studies hold water. So yeah. it's challenging to have to sustain their interest and at the same time teach them to critically evaluate the methods that, that they're reading about. Absolutely. And I think, you know, we, we all collectively have a colleague at Northern, Northern Colorado University, Doug Woody, who talks about teaching as, uh, as judo and sort of taking that energy and that interest and throwing it in a direction that is, that's it, that is useful. I, I always like that, that analogy, and I think this is a good place for it, right? So you have this interest. How can you sustain the interest and yet also teach that this is inherently not all fizzle? I think it's worth noting that not the last 10 or 15 years of research that we're wondering about, just slightly disagree with Scott there, the Many Labs project didn't reproduce the Stroop effect. Right. And, you know, of all the effects that you'd think, the, the Stroop effect, for people that don't know it, you know, you show a word, a color word in a different color, it takes longer than if it's in the same color. To not replicate that, that's an effect that everybody expected to replicate. So lack of replication isn't always about the original finding not being publishable, and the lack of replication isn't always about things that are, are recent. And I think there's a lot of published findings from the 50s and 60s and 70s that are regular social psych or intro psych textbook conversation pieces that actually need replication, that we need to go back and check because it had an N of 40. And a Milgram study had an N of 40. So I don't know that it's Twitterverse that's driving the need for more replication, but I think technology allows us to be more transparent. It's easy to share files. It's easy to connect with other people. It's easy now to date stamp when the process happens. So I think technology is allowing us to fix a problem that, as Laura's pointed out, we've been discussing for decades, and there hasn't been much movement on. Okay, and John, I think that's actually a really great place to pivot into talking about how this is being addressed in terms of authorship in psychology courses. So, Scott, you are obviously co-author on one of our research method products. You mentioned that at the beginning. How are you addressing the replication crisis in your research methods book? 
Yeah, it's a great question. I What Chris and I did was continue to collect all of the articles that were written about the replication uh, so-called crisis in the, between the 12th and 13th edition. And we kept sort of asking that same question. What do we do uh, as, in a methods text? I mean, it, be, it becomes, like I said, a really sort of interesting spot and a teachable moment for the methods course. But it, it has two problems. One is that it requires some technical knowledge. So it's not like you can lead off the textbook with, here's the replication crisis. On the other hand, so you can't lead off with it, but it sort of requires some information, but it, it, it's also this this important thing to, to make sure that you get to in, in the text. So what we ended up doing was sort of introducing the open science and data accessibility conversation in the kind of early chapters to have a sense of, hey, there's archival data out there and people can do this sort of thing. And then we referred off into meta-analyses and off into replication crisis later. And then we waited till the end of the text to really spend more time on open science replication. We have a, a special pullout box. So replication has been an important part of the text since the beginning, and particularly focused on in the last chapter on generalization. So what we decided to do is sort of expand that and talk about the idea. We thought it in closing was a good spot because you get a chance to say to readers, gosh, this is a big thing. And now you've come on this entire journey with us through this book and you know, with an instructor through the course. And here's this thing that really pulls together a lot of strings about what science should be and what it should do. And, and we sort of present the conversation there and, uh, and very much hope that you know, individual instructors are going to pick up that thread and, and keep running with it. Great. And Laura, how about you? You know, you are an author for us in introductory psychology. How are you handling the replication crisis as you revise your intro psych books? Well, I want to say that having written an intro psych, uh, these intro psych books, while this crisis is going, has been going on, is a little bit like staying one step ahead of an angry mob in that so many the first thing is something that students wouldn't know about, which is the kinds of, like, the level of revision that's had to occur because bodies of evidence are no longer uh, viable, that I do not feel comfortable using certain research, right, to, in sharing, to sharing that kind of work with students. So, for example, I guess it was the motivation chapter, talking about eating. And eating, you know, the psychology and physiology of eating, it's not that exciting. But some really interesting work, a uh, whole body of evidence reported by this guy, Brian Wansink. And a reviewer actually said to me, hey, you should really integrate this into that chapter. And I did. And I was very happy. And of course, it was much more interesting. Come to find out in the last, whatever, year that the, this person probably has made an incredible career out of p-hacking. There's a lot of doubt about the work. What's really hit home to me about it is it's quite possible that his hypotheses and conclusions are true, are accurate. They don't, they're not unreasonable ideas, but the data don't test those ideas, not in a way that we would think of as rigorous science. So that's no longer highlighted in that chapter. I found other research that I think is more uh, reliable and rigorous that, that present students the uh, similarly interesting work. And I think maybe that is one of the other sort of side things, we're sort of on the content side, is realizing how much 
you know, teaching intro and writing about psychology in, as an intro psych author is not so much chasing what is hot as creating heat around what you know and feel confident is solid science. And so, uh, and that's what teaching always is, getting students, and teaching psychology especially, getting students excited about everyday human behavior and about uh, what science has to offer in terms of understanding that behavior. In terms of coverage of the replication crisis itself, so not so much changing content that is related to replicability issues or p-hacking, but rather really you know, talking to students about the replication crisis, I think I will admit that at one point I wondered, is there an argument to be made that undergraduates and intro psych do not require coverage of the replication crisis? That talking to them in the textbook, let's say, about these issues is only creating a context where they will dismiss the science of psychology that we want them to learn. I did, uh, I was talking to lots of different people about the topic of what is the place of this kind of material in intro psych and ultimately decided that it should be covered, but in a way that I hope helps students, and again, anticipate what are the characteristics of excellent science? What are the kinds of findings that you would expect to replicate and which would you not? And so all of a sudden, replication is, is certainly... Uh, featured more heavily, the importance of replication, and the idea that many interesting studies have not survived attempts at replication. So I think it has to be in there. I'm, in my opinion, it has to be, students have to be given a chance to understand it and placed in a context of learning about what excellent research methods are. And, the, you know, there are no guarantees. A person, look at the uh, genome-wide association studies that people report, which have gigantic sample sizes, very small effect sizes that often just aren't replicable, right? These are not, it's not about being sloppy. It's about honest attempts at understanding that sometimes simply don't replicate. So we've kind of been touching on this throughout the podcast, and Laura, I think, now talking about what is the replications crisis in the classroom, I want to dig a little bit deeper into how you guys are handling this in the classroom. So, Kimberly, I know you've been discussing a little bit about how you're addressing this in the classroom. Can you expand on that in terms of the replication crisis's role in the classroom and how you're addressing that? Sure. And I, I kind of had the same initial reaction that Laura did. You know, when some of these articles came out in, in 2010 and 2011, I thought, I'll just pretend that my students will never see those and we'll just carry on and, and talk about <laughs> these fun studies that the students are excited about. And then I realized that it really is a teaching moment, not just about our discipline, but it's a teaching moment to educate students about science, right? Because students, especially in intro psych, but even maybe in research methods, are not necessarily going to go on and become a psychologist, but they will be existing in a world where they have to evaluate the results of psychological studies for their own children or evaluate psychological studies when they're choosing a therapist or choosing, um, you know, different types of educational styles that they want to focus on. So I think educating students about the replication crisis makes them a more educated consumer generally. So there's a couple things that I, that I do in my classes to help students. You know, I'll either have them critique an article 
or I have them do an actual study. So both in an intro site class and certainly in research methods, it's really easy for me as the instructor to replicate a study using the students as participants, or I can have the students, you know, try to conduct the replication themselves. And often, you know, we're not going to obtain the expected results, and, you know, we're obviously not necessarily doing a controlled laboratory study in the classroom, but this helps me as the instructor have a dialogue about why we maybe didn't obtain the original findings, like why didn't our replication activity produce the same findings. Um, and a lot of times, you know, I'll pick a robust effect, um, something like the serial position effect in memory, right, the idea that where an item is going to be placed in a list can affect its likelihood of being remembered, and this is easy to do in the classroom, right, you can come up with a list of like 10 grocery items, say, you know, tomatoes, broccoli, coffee, milk, and then you look and see if students remember the first item or the last item that was in the list. And this effect, right, is pretty robust. It's been replicated hundreds of times, both with exact replications and conceptual replication. So it would be pretty strange for my students not to replicate it, but sometimes they don't. They don't replicate the serial position effect, and so we'll have a conversation about how their study was conducted differently or what are some potential factors or third variables that may have impacted their study, and how does that inform us about the concept of the serial position effect. So that's one of the things that I'll do in the classroom. If we don't have time or if I don't feel like the students have the ability to conduct a study, um, then I will provide them with an article to read. Like I said art earlier, one of the articles I've always been intrigued by was the, um, the medical study um, that noted the spurious link between vaccines and autism. And I like to use that one in the classroom first because I feel as if I start with a psychology article, right away students then say, okay, I'm not going to major in psychology, everything is false, you guys can't even conduct your own studies. Mm. So I start out with this one because I think students, you know, unfortunately seem to have more respect for medicine than they do for psychology. And this one's a great one because I used to tell the students about the article secondhand, and it's still pretty controversial today. You know, we, we have uh, family friends that still don't get their children vaccinated. Um, and I decided I wanted to have the students read the original article. And other faculty said, this will be too difficult, this will be too challenging. Turns out that article is only four pages long. So I give them the original study. Sometimes they've heard about the study. Other times, you know, they haven't because now, you know, the study has been conducted about 25 years ago in the 1990s. And I have them critique it. And I'm usually quite pleased that the students are able to pick out some of the major flaws, the actual physical flaws of the study, but also some of the ethical flaws of the study. Um, if you're not familiar with it, um, Andrew Wakefield collected some of the data at a children's party. He was withdrawing blood from children. And, you know, there's lots of interesting issues that the students can pick up on. And I think it's great because not only does it allow the students to kind of exercise their skill set in being able to identify these flaws, but also considering what makes a study well-designed, but it also bolsters their confidence in their ability to critically evaluate research because sometimes they're kind of hesitant to critique something when the person's name has MD or PhD after it. So those are a couple of the things that, that I do in the classroom. I'm excited to hear what, um, what the rest of you do in the classroom, too. Maybe I can steal some ideas. I've already stole yours. <laughs> Yay! I'm very excited. <laughs> That's an awesome idea. I, re I read that paper. It never occurred to me. Um, I think it's a great idea to have students actually read it and critique it. That's fantastic. 
Well, I had a very similar response regarding intro that this doesn't, for me, it doesn't seem to be a, a big conversation that we should be having in intro. The students need to understand basic psychological processes and, and how we ask questions about that more than they need to know about the debates that are going on. So beyond introducing the problem, and again, to, to remind students that all science is that pursuit of truth and not a statement of truth, but you know, <laughs> the best we can do is guess. The best we ever can do is say this is the best we know at the time. Uh, I think sometimes we start believing in our findings, which is the problem. And so in intro, after I introduce the concept, later I'll talk about the need throughout the course to be critically evaluating the material that we're, we're talking about in the, in the textbook. So do you believe this finding would replicate? And we can, again, talk about the difference between belief and science. Because we all read a finding, and we all have a gut response or an in intuitive belief about that replication. But in fact, replication is empirical. And, and so that the issue of, of turning our intro students, most of whom will not be psych majors, into critical consumers of knowledge is the most important thing we're doing in, the, in an intro course. And when I look around at society today, it seems like we need more critical thinking uh, in, in any opportunity. So to critically evaluate all effects within the intro book. In methods, I think it's a different conversation and, and one that should predominate throughout the course. I think when we talk about controlling questionable research pra practices by limiting degrees of freedom, you could almost do your entire methods course by talking about it through that framework and by learning about how to do research by not doing it incorrectly or learning to do it correctly to avoid doing things incorrectly. So I think in methods, the conversation about what good science is and where we are right now, it comes out early. And I have my students, wherever possible, engage in an authentic research experience. So the, the collaborative replications, the education project, the uh, many labs project, the reproducibility project, these are opportunities for students to engage in real science while learning their craft. And all of these projects value open science and transparency because they're asking questions about science. And so for the methods, it's something that I think comes up in one form or another weekly, if not in every class period. In intro, I don't know that, you know, I've only taught intro a couple times since the, the crisis broke, and I don't know that I'll, I'll talk about it more than, I don't know, 20 or 30 minutes total across the entire semester. It's always surprising to me, though, how many, you know, how many research projects, how many studies that are honestly so interesting that have really been lost to us as intro psych uh, instructors, right? And it is, it's very, you know, anything about prime to behavior is now sort of off the table. So many studies that are, that really were the um, meat, right, of some content that you would give to students in a really exciting way. And I guess that's kind of helped me to come to understand again that just in the same way that I don't think using really vivid negative examples is a really good way to keep students' attention all the way through intro because I think that's why students think that psychology is the science of what's wrong with people instead of the science of human behavior. I think using sort of high, hot, 
high-profile, hot, sexy um, findings is just, an, you know, those are the same findings that students are going to stumble upon on social media with somebody talking about how what they weren't replicable. I also want to mention, though, that failing to replicate something doesn't mean that the first study was, quote, wrong, right? I think it's really important for students to understand that we're interested in a body of knowledge and there may be reasons why a particular study does not show uh, the predicted effect. It's not about stacking up, here's one, study one and study two, and let's stack them up against each other and have them fight it out. That I really want them to get an idea, and I like this idea, right, that science is the pursuit of truth, not a statement of truth, because it's about everybody should be working towards the same goal. It's really, I think, important for students to understand, even if it isn't true, that Replicators are not the enemy of the uh, original researcher. That everybody's working towards the same goal. We're all on the same page. We all want to know what's the thing we know right now, how, what's our best knowledge right now. And so that all of these relationships of scholars needn't be thought of in an adversarial way or in a way of sort of shooting somebody down. Uh, and then in some ways, that's why I think it's unfortunate that things, and I, but I agree that it's true, that all, a lot of the crisis started with Stoppel because the Stoppel, Stoppel was a bad guy. <laughs> People who do studies that they publish, right, I think the vast majority of us are doing a good faith effort, right? This is what I found. And if someone fails to find it, I'm going to be surprised. I'm not going to be, you know, that everyone shouldn't see a replicator as someone trying to prove that the original investigator is Stoppel. They're not, right? It's about knowledge. It's not about the implication that somehow people engaged in nefarious activity. In my experience, students rarely see the, the, the replicator as the, the bully, that they mm -hmm. just assume that's what good scientists are supposed to be doing. And so yeah. I, I'd like to echo everything that Laura just said, that all of her, her points I agree with. And I think it's very important for students to see our job is to replicate. Mm -hmm. A lot of the early problems with replication, you know, there were three events in that, in that year of crisis. A lot of the early attempts to replicate the social priming stuff were people trying to get it ready for their dissertation or their master's thesis. And, you know, before right. you add your own manipulation to it, you have to demonstrate that you can find the effect. So these poor graduate students were churning study after study, trying to show an effect that they just couldn't find. And so it, were, it, it was acolytes and, and uh, fans of the research that were doing the replication that found the problem in, in the social priming unconscious thought area. And right. that's probably true with all the other ones. That's the area I know more of because I'm social psychology. But it's not that replicators can't be mean, but uh, replication science is what we teach in methods textbooks. Well, and I'm hoping, AJ, similar to some of the other podcasts, that we could provide the audience with some links to some of these resources. Because, again, I think it's great for, for faculty, but certainly students, to read some about some of this research firsthand. Because I'm, I'm not ready to throw out the priming literature. I did a lot of research on priming. <laughs> you know, there's, there's, hundred, there's hundreds of studies. I, I will admit I was a little devastated about the uh, stereotypes about the elderly and walking behavior. But even that, 
there have been some conceptual replications of that that actually have demonstrated the same results as, as the original study um, in the 1990s. So I, so I don't want to throw that out, but I think it's definitely important to try to stay abreast of the research because we can't read every single study that comes out. Um, so if we could provide the audience with some resources, I think that would be really helpful. The 2012 special issue in Perspectives on Psych Science about the replication crisis and the response was one of three special issues that Bobby Spellman hosted about this topic. But that 2012, November 2012 issue is free for all readers. They, they set it free for all time so that anyone could access it. And it really does cover the breadth of the topic and at a very basic level. So for intro instructors that, that want to hand students direct reads or methods instructors that want to hand students direct reads, I think that special issue is a great place to start. That's a great idea. So typically we leave off with some parting thoughts, but I think it's probably more appropriate given today's topic to, to discuss the legacy of the replication crisis, both short and long term. Do one of you guys want to tackle that and we'll each take a turn before we sign off? I'd love to say that in 50 years, when we look back at this moment, I think that what we're going to say is that the, the replication crisis engendered a new phase of psychological research where transparency and openness led to better outcomes. I don't see this, and I think others have said this on this call, I don't see our current space as threatening as much as a wake-up call. And so I think the long-term legacy are all of the open science initiatives that were developed as an outcome of the crisis itself and that we're going to be on better footing as a result. But time, it's just time. Yeah, and I think that's an optimistic way of looking at it because, you know, a lot of times when you hear replication crisis, you know, the word crisis is so negatively loaded. You know, I think this has been a valuable way for psychologists to kind of put the microscope on our own science and, and think about, you know, what we are publishing, what we are rewarding scientists for publishing, and also how we're teaching it. And for me, where my position is primarily teaching, you know, I always tell my students that one of the hallmarks of science and, and psychology in particular is that we do make everything public and accessible. And so I think not only having this dialogue with our students and with other faculty, but also making the research available um, and accessible. I love that that one journal, uh, John, that you talked about is, is really accessible for students. That's fabulous because for undergraduates, you know, they don't necessarily have the funds to subscribe to journals and they may not have a library that houses these journals. And so making it more public and accessible makes it seem as if we're not trying to hide anything, which, which we're not. I, I think we were always trying to be transparent, but maybe we didn't do such a good job at it. So I also kind of look at this optimistically, um, and I think moving forward, it really is going to strengthen our field, um, particularly in the public's eye, but it's going to take some more growing pains, I think. <laughs> Yeah, I guess I would like to think, I mean, I hope that it is true that there will be relatively permanent changes in our field based on what has happened in the last few years. I think that, but I, I have to admit, I, I don't know that I feel it right now. I feel that there are people, and again, I would say younger scholars, who are ready 
who are so ready for change. They're ready for larger sample sizes, pre-registered studies. They're ready for open data. They're ready for exactly the kinds of things that we think of in an idealistic way of as really excellent science. So I feel like if those people are able to stick with it through the hard, difficult times of getting a job, of getting tenure, of becoming leaders, not just sort of uh, vocal young people, but actual leaders in the field, I think that would have a huge impact. I don't know that I see it now. I, I definitely see reviewers and editors who are still um, not on necessarily on board. And I think that having young people who have grown up on this, who have, have learned about this crisis, who recognize that they want to be scientists, they always were in this because they wanted to be scientists, not to be celebrity scholars and not to be, you know, that, that the actual act of publishing an article isn't what it's all about. It's the understand, right, finding out what's true or what's true right now is what the motivation is. So I think that if those young voices are able to make it into uh, academic positions and ultimately into positions of leadership, I think this crisis will be, will have been a challenge and not a crisis and we'll be happy and we will, you know, as a field, I think benefit. I think the, the knowledge, our, our trust in our knowledge will be so much stronger. But I have to say that we, social psychologists, hey, all of psychology, how long have we read about how terrible null hypothesis significance testing is, right? We've been reading these articles since, you know, before I was born, those articles existed. But we've been, you know, there have been very similar complaints leveled throughout the history of experimental psychology. So I, I do hope, I think maybe technology is helping and maybe, the, again, there is a, a wave, a momentum of younger scholars who I think are ready to really see these changes implemented so that it is the mainstream that is requiring pre-registered replications and high, large samples and actual understanding of what null results mean, right? Coming up with ways to understand that even though your p-value isn't what you were hoping for, you can learn from those data. So I think if, if I, you know, I believe that children are the future, y'all. <laughs> and if they stick with it, then I think there's real hope that this is a turning point. All right. Well, with that, Laura, Kimberly, John Scott, just want to thank the four of you for joining us today to tackle the topic of the replication crisis. I think this has been a great conversation. And I also want to thank everybody that's on the line and been listening with us throughout this entire podcast and hope to see you guys at the next one. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, AJ. Thanks, AJ. Thanks, everyone. What a great conversation. Very nice to talk to you all about this topic. Very nice to talk to you all about this topic. This has been a McGraw-Hill production. Thank you for listening.